Well, let's go to the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke in chapter 22 tonight. Luke chapter 22. Going to look at a familiar person in the scriptures, someone that I'm sure everybody here has heard of before. And there's a lot said about this individual in the scripture because he shows us both some positive and some negative about this person. And I'm glad that the Bible didn't cancel everybody that made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the world wants to cancel everybody that did something wrong. I'm glad God didn't do that. We'd have a pretty thin Bible if God only included perfect people in it. Uh, we'd have the life of Jesus. That'd be all we have. And uh, these things that God wrote are for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so we can learn a lot from the Apostle Peter. And we see an instance here in his life in Luke chapter 22, and starting with verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he, the Lord, said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Did you know that the devil knows you better than you know yourself? Now, we think we know ourselves pretty good. We think, you know, I know what I like. I know what I don't like. I, like what, I know what makes me happy. I know what makes me sad. I know what I like to eat. I know what I don't want to eat. We tend to think after living for a while that we kind of understand ourselves, what makes us tick, how we operate, so to speak. But the devil knows us as well. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, the devil is not a roaring lion, okay? He's as a roaring lion. This is a metaphor. And I don't know everything there is to know about lions, but I know this, when they're hungry, they don't roar. In fact, when a lion is hungry, he's very quiet. Uh, he kind of sneaks up on a herd of prey. He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be heard. He's, he's very quiet. He maybe slinks his way through some taller grass until he gets to a herd that, and, and sees one that maybe is wandering away or one that is young, and then he springs into an attack. The devil roars when he's trying to intimidate. The devil is one who loves to intimidate us in various ways. And Peter says, be sober. Be on guard, be vigilant, because this adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Now, the word devour there means to make, to disappear. Now, the devil doesn't have a magic wand that he can wave over your head and cause you to vanish in thin air. But what he wants to do is make your testimony disappear. He wants your life to be ineffective. He doesn't want you to impact anybody else. He wants you to just kind of, okay, you're saved, that's great, but, you know, that's it. 
He doesn't want you to influence anyone else. So the devil works hard in each of our lives to make our testimony, our impact, to disappear. Now we might think, well, yeah, but I, I've been saved for a while and, and uh, I'm pretty strong in the Lord. I mean, I, I, I know my weaknesses and I know where I'm maybe vulnerable and, and, and I'm going to be okay. I'm not afraid of the devil. Be careful. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before fall. You say, yeah, but you know, if, if the devil comes at me, I think I know how to resist him. I, I, I think I've got some things down. I, I know where I can, you know, attack him. But be careful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You say, well, if the devil gets to me, I mean, if he does hit me in the face and knock me over, I'll be able to get back up. I mean, I'll be able to recover. I, I'll be able to, to move forward. He's not going to be able to, to get me down for long. Be careful. There was a man in the Old Testament by the name of Samson. Samson had the Spirit of God upon his life even before he was born. And God invested into Samson an amazing physical strength. Nobody could figure out where it came from. I don't think Samson was this Herculean-looking guy because nobody could figure out where his strength was. If he had huge muscles, everybody thought, man, that guy's just huge. But Samson had this divine strength, and he really was an amazing person. And God had designated him as a deliverer to the nation of Israel over the enemy the Philistines. He was to be that judge that would finally deliver God's people from their enemies. And Samson did some amazing things. I mean, Samson took a lion and with his bare hands ripped that lion in half. Now, I don't know what would possess a person to even try that, but that's a pretty amazing thing. Samson caught 300 foxes, tied their tails together, and then lit them on fire and sent them through the Philistines' cornfields. Amazing. Well, one day they, 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 they caught Samson. They, they tied his arms and his legs. They tied him to the, to the gate of the city. I mean, they chained him to this gate. And Samson just kind of let him do it. And they get him all tied up to the gate. And when they were done, he just stood up and walked away with the gate. <laughs> Samson had this amazing strength. But we all kind of understand the story one day Samson awakens in the lap of Delilah. As he opens his eyes to the words of Delilah, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. And, and, and Samson awakens and sees the locks of his hair lying on the floor. You see, Samson had played loose with the Nazarite vow. He had been placed by God under a vow and that vow was uh, very important to God, but Samson got a little careless with it. He got careless with the, with the women in his life, and he got careless with, with his pride, and he got careless with uh, the, the, uh, uh, the drink and, and, and all the, the frivolity of the world. And, and, and Samson uh, wasn't to cut his hair under this Nazarite vow, and now his hair has been shorn. But the Bible says in Judges chapter 16 and verse 20 that Samson shook himself. And he said, I'll go out as at, as at other times before. In other words, Samson thought, okay, they got me. That woman figured out my riddle, and now 
you know, I, I, I'm in trouble, but it'll be all right. He shook himself and thought, I'll just, I'll just go out like at other times and defeat these enemies. But the rest of the verse says, he wist not that the Spirit of God had departed from him. And if we're not careful, the devil will use a process of things in our life to make us disappear. Samson could have been that deliverer the nation needed, but because he wasn't on guard against Satan, he really had very little impact for the cause of God. So tonight, let's look at the life of Peter. Because in the life of Peter, I believe we see four common tactics that Satan uses over and over again because they work. If something works, he's not going to abandon using it. And we see it in the life of Peter, and I think all of us can recognize these things happening in our lives as well. First of all, Satan will heighten our fears. Now, all of us have some fears. Fear is an emotion that all of us were created with. And there are certain things that, that we um, tend to be frightened by, um, if we were honest. I'll start. I don't like snakes. I, I, I do not like snakes. Um, if you want me to leave this building, just bring a snake in here. I'm, I'm going to leave. I, I don't like snakes. I had a bad experience as a little kid with a snake, and, and I just, I want no part of them. Um, uh, people say, well, that's not a poisonous snake. I'm not going to hang around long enough to find out if it is or it isn't. I just don't like snakes. Now, some people love them. Some people have them for pets. I, I'm just not interested. I don't like snakes. I'm afraid of snakes. Some people are afraid of heights. Some people are afraid of closed-in spaces. Some people are afraid of the dark. They do surveys all the time about people's fears, and every time they do one, the number, the number one fear of people is public speaking. In fact, death always comes in number three. So some people would rather die than get up and talk in front of people. But all of us have some fears. And I don't know what yours are, but the devil works hard in our life to heighten those fears. It seems like over these past months, Satan has worked over our fears. It seems like as one of the tactics of Satan that he's commonly using today is to make us afraid. And that fear can come in various uh, forms. Sometimes a person is afraid to, to get saved or they're afraid to serve God because of maybe what their family might think. It always amazes me, Pastor, that it seems like when someone gets saved, their, their biggest cheerleaders ought to be their family. But oftentimes that's not the case. Someone gets saved and they start coming to church. They want to do what's right. And their family says, oh, come on now. You're not going to become one of those holy Joes, are you? You're not going to join a cult or something, are you? I mean, going to church again? And that pressure comes and there's a fear of family. You know, I'm glad the Bible says in Psalm 27, when my father and mother forsook me, then the Lord took me up. I'm glad the Bible tells us there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And while the devil can use sometimes the fear of family, sometimes he'll use the fear of friendships. We think, oh, I'm going to lose these friends if I, if I do right. I'm going to lose this, this opportunity with these people if I really take my stand for God. Well, the Bible tells us the fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made safe. Many seek the ruler's favor, but every man's judgment cometh from the Lord. 
We're not going to stand before each other at the judgment. We're going to stand before God. You might be afraid uh, of your friends. Uh, you, you might think, I can't get saved. My friends will reject me. You know, your friends can laugh you out of heaven, but they can't laugh you out of hell. Someone could laugh at you tonight and keep you from getting saved and laugh you out of heaven, but nobody's going to laugh you out of hell. Friends. Sometimes the devil uses uh, finances. We think, oh, if I, if I really sell out to God, I'll, I'll, I'll be miserable. I'll never have anything. I'll never enjoy anything in life. I'm going to miss out on all these things over here. And, and I just have to live this life of all these thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And I just, I don't want to live that way. You know, the devil tries to make us think that our choice is between, is between pleasure and misery. You know, the devil says, now, if you're going to be miserable, go ahead and serve God. I mean, if you want to be miserable, not have anything in life, never enjoy a single day of your life, just, just go ahead and get saved and serve God. But if you want to have fun, come over here and serve me or serve your flesh, serve the world. And the, the devil wants us to think that choice is between pleasure and misery. That's not the choice at all. The choice is between pleasure and pleasure. What we have to decide is how long do we want the pleasure to last? Because there is pleasure in sin for a season. I mean, let's not, let's not be ignorant of the fact that there are people tonight out living it up in sin, having a good time. In other words, they're laughing, they're having fun. They would say, I had a great time, you know, in this immoral act or getting drunk or, you know, whatever it was. They, they had a good time, but, but tomorrow brings a little different story. There's only pleasure in sin for a season. But God says in Psalm 1611, at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So it's not a choice of pleasure or misery. It's a choice of pleasure or pleasure. we got to decide how long do I want this pleasure to last. God's pleasure is eternal. It's an abundant life. It's an eternal life. The devil loves to create these fears. Some people are afraid to fail. They're, they have a fear of failure. They think, well, I don't want to take that next step. I might fail. Do you know that most of your Bible was written by murderers? Moses was a murderer. Killed a guy in Exodus chapter 2. But God used him to write the first five books of the Bible. David had the blood of Uriah all over his hands. But God used David to write the bulk of the Psalms. And the Apostle Paul, he was a murderer. He was responsible for the death of Stephen and obviously many others. But God used Paul to write the bulk of the New Testament epistles. You say, well, Brother Gash, should I go kill somebody so God can use me? I got somebody in mind. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, that's what the people in the, in, in, in the church at Rome thought when they read Paul's letter in Romans chapter 5. He said, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And they thought, okay, Paul's been telling us to have grace. We need grace in our life. And now he said, the more sin there is, the more grace there is. So let's go sin so we can have more grace. No, no. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. In other words, we don't sin to get God's grace, but aren't you glad when we sin, God's grace is greater than that sin. But see, the devil loves to fuel these fears. He heightens our fears in our life. And whenever there are fears, we can mark it down. Those fears are not coming from God. 
Now, I think Peter had a fear of being accepted. I think Peter had a fear of peer pressure. I mean, we see it in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus had to say to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. We see it in this chapter where, where Peter, he's saying, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll never deny you. I would die for you, but I'll never deny you. And a few minutes later, he's standing around a fire and somebody says, uh, hey, weren't you with him? Uh, I, I don't know the man. A little while later, another little girl says, uh, you, you were one of his disciples. You were with Jesus. No, I, I don't know the man. A little while later, another maid says, uh, you're one of them. Your speech betrayeth thee. And he begins to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. The fear of peer pressure. And boy, the devil used that in Peter's life. That fear is not coming from God. God's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You see, 1 John 4, 18 says, Perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. There's no fear in love. There's only one perfect love, and that's God's love. And when you have God's love, that love overcomes the fears that Satan brings our way. Fear thou not. I am with thee. Be not dismayed. I am thy God. I'll strengthen thee. I'll help thee. I'll uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Oh, the world today, the devil, they want us to couch and cower in fear of all these different things around us. And God says, hey, I'm your refuge. I'm your strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Satan will heighten our fears. But notice, secondly, he will highlight our faults. Now, Peter, I think if he had a fault, as you study his life in the Gospels, I think Peter's fault was... He was impetuous. Peter was the guy that stepped in the street and then he looked both ways. <laughs> Peter would, would, would speak before he thought about what he was going to say. He was one of those people that just kind of reacted to situations without really thinking through what the best action might be. We see it again close to this passage where they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and the, the soldiers come along with Judas and Judas plants that betrayal kiss. And, and, uh, and, and Peter, what does he do? He pulls out his sword and he takes a swipe at Malchus and, 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 and lops off his ear. And Jesus has to, has to do a miracle there in the garden to heal Malchus's ear. Uh, Peter was impetuous. He was always the first to kind of step into it, you know, and, and say his part or do his part. He was impetuous. And it seems like the devil kind of highlighted those faults. Do we recognize areas of our life that are faulty? Perhaps sinful? You know, we may be able to kind of cover it up, but you're going to find in your life the devil will wait for the exact opportune time to highlight that fault. You know, it might be, for instance, anger. 
And you're pretty well able to subdue it because in public you don't want people to perceive that you are an angry person. And, and, and so in church and at work you keep it under control and, and, and you function fine. But inside you're, you're troubled and angry and, 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 and have problems. And, and yet what will happen is the devil will wait for that moment when all your kids are around. And you'll get angry. And all of a sudden, you've hurt your testimony with even your own children because of that anger. The devil loves to highlight our faults. We need to get good at confessing our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Years ago, there was a young preacher and he was a good preacher. He was kind of an up-and-coming preacher and he was starting to get known a little bit. He was pastoring a church, but he was a wonderful preacher and he started to travel a little bit and get asked to preach at different meetings and such. And he enjoyed preaching, always took those invitations with, with honor and, and, uh, and uh, enjoyed going out and preaching in various places. Well, he got an invitation to preach at a conference and uh, he gladly accepted it. It wasn't too far away, and he would be able to travel easily to this uh, location and preach, and he was excited about it. There would be a lot of preachers there and so on, and as well as God's people. And, and so he, he uh, began to prepare and his own heart and the messages and so on. And a few weeks before, he discovered, through some correspondence with the pastor, that he was not the only speaker at this conference. He was going to be preaching with Dr. John R. Rice. Well, at that time, Dr. Rice was a veteran evangelist. Dr. Rice had traveled all over the world and preached thousands of revivals. He had raised a wonderful family, six daughters. He had written all these books and and, uh, just was known as a tremendous man of God. And this young preacher thought, oh, my word, how how am I going to share a platform with somebody like that? And he thought about even canceling. He thought, I'm not worthy to preach with a guy like that. But he'd given his word and he thought, well, Lord, you just got to help me. Well, he gets to the meeting and uh, the pastor met them both at the front there. And he said, now, I've arranged for you guys to to stay at this hotel. And he said, "Uh, you're going to be sharing a room. Now, back in those days, that wasn't that unusual. You know, save some money, get, get a room with a couple of beds and put two preachers in there. That, that wasn't unusual. It'd be a little odd today, probably. But, but that wasn't unusual. When that young preacher heard that, he about, he about died. I mean, he thought, now I, I don't have to preach with this guy. I got to live with him all week. Well, the first night went well. They both preached and God blessed. But then they were taken to the hotel. And this young preacher, he was so nervous. He thought, what am I going to do? They got to the room and And uh, they started putting some things away. And the young preacher, he said, Dr. Rice, I don't want to get in your way this week. I don't want to be trouble to you. I don't want to disturb you. I know you have a lot of things to do with your work with the sword of the Lord and all these different things you write. And I just just don't want to disturb you. He said, what time do you normally get up in the morning? And Dr. Rice said, well, I get up at five. The young preacher said, oh, that's great. That's great. That's the time I get up. That'll be great. We'll both get up at the same time. He said, Dr. Rice, what do you do first thing when you get up? And Dr. Rice said, well, I I like to read my Bible. I like to spend some time talking to the Lord. And 
And the young preacher said, oh, Dr. Rice, that's great. He said, you know, that'll work out really good because first thing in the morning, I love to go out and get a little exercise. I like to get a good run or a walk in, and I like to think and pray. And, and while I'm doing that exercise, and he said, that'll work out great. He said, we'll get up, and, and, and I'll, I'll leave, and you can have the room for your time with the Lord. So they agreed. They set the alarms, and 5 o'clock the next morning, they went off, and Dr. Rice rolled right out of bed, and sitting on the edge of the bed, he took his Bible and began to read, and the young preacher dressed as quietly as he could and, and slipped out the door, went on his run, and it was gone about an hour and a half. He came back, he had his own key, and so he opened the door, and most hotel rooms, this is still true today, the, the restroom is, is generally pretty close to the front door. Usually when you walk in a hotel room, the restroom is either the left or the right. In some, like a suite or something, it might be different. But, but in most hotel rooms, just a common room, the, the restroom is, is right there. And such was the case. He, he walked in, and the restroom was to the right, and the door was open. The light was on, and Dr. Rice was in the restroom. And he was hunched over the commode, and he was tearing up a piece of paper real fast and flushing it down the toilet. And it kind of surprised the young preacher to see this. And he just kind of blurted out, he said, Dr. Rice, what, what are you doing? And Dr. Rice straightened up, he turned, looked at the young preacher, he's all flush in his face. He said, oh, I was confessing my sins. He said, whenever I confess my sins, I always make a list of them so that I don't forget any. And then after I've confessed each one, I I destroy the list so that nobody else will find out how wicked I am. Wow. Maybe that's why Dr. Rice had the power of God in his life. Maybe that's why his family turned out so well. Maybe that's why he had the ability to write and preach and do all those things he did with his life. He was willing to be honest about those things in his life that needed God's forgiveness and correction. Satan will heighten our fears. He'll highlight our faults. But notice thirdly, he will harass our faith. You know, the devil knows the Bible. The devil has probably seen every verse in this book. He probably has more of it memorized than most of us. I think the devil knows the verse that says, the just shall live by faith. I think he knows that. It's three times in the Bible, so he's probably seen it at least once. I think the devil knows the verse that says we walk by faith, not by sight. I think the devil knows that verse. I certainly think the devil knows the verse that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, if I was the devil, and I knew that for you and me, it was impossible to please God without faith, what would I do? I'd try to destroy your faith. I would harass your faith. I would try to weaken your faith. Because if you can't please God without faith, then my tactic would be to try to harm your faith, to get you to begin to doubt, to, to get you to, be, to begin to question. The devil wants to harass our faith. Now, Peter had some pretty amazing faith. I mean, if you, if you think back to when Jesus first met Peter, he was a fisherman. And 
Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, Mark chapter 4, for example, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee and he sees two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, cast in a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the Bible says that Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. One of the passages says, and straightway, or immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, just think about that for a minute. Here's Peter. He's a businessman. He's got a business. He's, he's got a fishing business. He's got nets. He's got boats. He's perhaps got a crew. I don't, we don't know all that he had. But Peter is, is, is working, and all of a sudden, this, this stranger that he's heard about just briefly through his brother comes by and says, follow me. And Peter says, okay. Peter is the only disciple, as far as we know, that was married. You ever thought about that? Now, a lot of Jesus' ministry was in and around Galilee, and no doubt Peter, at the end of the day, went home to his wife. But there were a lot of days where he didn't, because they were a long way from home. Think about that. For three years, Peter leaves his business. He, he leaves all of this, this responsibility. He leaves his family, more or less, and just by faith follows the Lord. No, no, don't take any food. Jesus said, don't take any clothes with you. Don't take a script. You just follow me, and, and, and we'll, we'll be provided for. And by faith, Peter has followed the Lord. I think probably the greatest illustration of Peter's faith was one night Jesus told the disciples to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he would meet them on the other side. He was going to go up in the mountains to pray. So these disciples, they get on board the ship, and they started over to the other side. And as is often the case on that Sea of Galilee or Sea of Tiberias, a storm came up. And those storms come up very quickly, still to this day, and can be quite violent. But a number of these men on board were fishermen. They had, their fishing was their background, and they had been on those, those waters before. They had seen these kind of storms. They knew how to, how to manage a boat through a storm, but this storm had their number. I mean, this thing was relentless, and they're doing everything they can to offload the boat. They're doing everything they can to bring that thing to the other side, but nothing's working. Water is coming on now, and the wind is howling, and all of a sudden, in the midst of that storm, they see somebody out on the water. And they're, 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 they're thinking, what is this? Is this a ghost? And, and John says, I, I think that's the Lord. And Peter, he says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me that I come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And Peter steps out of the boat. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried to walk on water? Peter steps out of the boat, and the, and the water was not calm. When I first heard this story, it was in Sunday school. The teacher had a flannel graph lesson. And in the flannel graph lesson, the water was calm. But then I read the Bible. 
and the water, the, the waves were crashing against that boat. Water's coming on board the boat. The wind is howling. And yet in the midst of that storm, Peter steps out onto that water and begins to walk on water to Jesus. And we don't know how many steps he took. The flannel graph story said two. But I read the Bible, it doesn't say. And, and as I think about the story, Jesus was so far away, they didn't know who it was. So maybe it was five, 10, maybe 15 steps. We don't know. But he walked on the water. Now, you know the story. You're way ahead of me. He begins to see the wind boisterous and the waves, and, and, and it, it takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he begins to sink, and he cries, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. And then he said some amazing words. He said, O ye of little faith. What? Lord, what are you talking about? Did you not just see what I saw? I just saw a man walking on water, and you're saying, O ye of little faith? That would take a humongous amount of faith to walk on water. What, Lord, are you seeing here? Check out that phrase in the scripture, O ye of little faith. Jesus uses it three times. And in each case, he's not talking about the amount of faith. Have you ever thought to yourself, I need more faith? I just need more faith. I just need to have more faith. But when Jesus said, oh, you have little faith, he was not talking about the amount. Peter had amazing faith. He was talking about the duration of that faith. Remember what he said here in Luke 22? Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. See, Jesus recognized his great faith. By the way, it took a lot of faith for you to get saved. That's the only way you get saved, right? And it takes a lot of faith to get saved. Have you ever seen God? And what in the world are you doing putting your faith in something you can't see? Right? I mean, it takes a lot of faith to get saved. It takes faith to serve God. It takes faith to walk with God. It takes an enormous amount of faith... But the question is, will your faith endure? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, God doesn't want us to just start the race in faith and, and, and go for a little while, take a few steps. He wants us to endure in that faith all the way to the end. And Satan, all along that journey, is going to harass your faith and harass your faith and harass your faith and try to bring doubts and fears and concerns into your life. God says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee. Because he trusteth in thee, trust ye in the Lord forever, for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. The proverb says in chapter 24 and verse 10, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. And we're going to face adversity. We're, we've already faced adversity. There's going to be more adversity coming our way. But don't faint in that day of adversity. Ask God, as the apostles did, Lord, increase our faith, not in amount, but in duration. And those disciples, Peter as well, boy, their faith went all the way to the end. 
Did you know that Peter, according to history, was crucified for his faith? Fox's Book of Martyrs gives the story from Jerome, the historian. When they brought Peter to the place of crucifixion, Peter requested that he be crucified upside down. For he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner and form as my Lord. And so, Jerome states, they crucified Peter on the cross with his head downward and his feet upward. Boy, I guess his faith endured. There were some bumps in the road for sure. There were some times where Peter faltered and, and, and Peter thought, I don't know if I can keep going. But, but God allowed that prayer, increase our faith, to be answered. And he can for you as well. But then notice finally, he'll, he'll heighten our fears. He'll highlight our faults. He'll harass our faith. But then fourthly, he'll hinder our focus. There's one more story in the life of Peter that bears thought. After Jesus had died and was buried and rose again, Peter, in John chapter 21, says to a few other of the disciples, I go a-fishing. Now, if you said, I'm going fishing, you'd probably mean I'm going to take a day off, I'm going to get a little R&R, I'm going to get a little recreation. But that's not what Peter meant. When Peter said in John 21, 3, I go fishing, he meant I quit. I'm going back to what I was doing before Christ called me. This ministry thing's not working out. This isn't what I thought it would be. And so Peter basically is, is quitting the ministry. And so the other disciples, they said, we also go with thee. Be careful. Um, people are following you. So they get in a boat, and you know the story. They went out, and they fished all night. And the Bible says they caught nothing. That shouldn't have surprised them. Because Jesus had told them, without me, you can do nothing. But they fished all night, caught nothing. And in the morning, they're bringing that boat in with no catch. And some guy on the shore says, children, have you any meat? In other words, have you caught anything? And they said, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side, and you shall find. I can see Peter kind of rolling his eyes like, who is this guy? We've been out here all night. We know what we're doing. We know where the schools of fish are. We've fished this sea many times. They're just not there tonight. Ah, throw over the net. Get this guy off our back. They threw the net over, and immediately it was filled with 153 fish. An amazing miracle. And finally, as they come with that net of fishes to shore, Jesus already had breakfast cooking on a fire. And he said, come and dine. And after they had dined, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now, the Bible is not a video. It's a book. You've got to read a book. You can't go home tonight and watch the Bible. Now, you can go home and read the Bible, but you can't go home and watch it. But when you read the Bible, you better supply some video in your head or you're not going to understand it. You've you got to picture it. Because when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, lovest thou me more than these, he had to be pointing at something. 
Now, we don't know what he's pointing at because it just says, lovest thou me more than these. Well, what are the these? When he asked the question, he had to be pointing at something. So who was he pointing at? What was he pointing at? Was he pointing at the other disciples? Peter, do you love me more than these guys? Did he point to some houses dotting the hillsides of Galilee? Peter, do you love me more than those houses over there? Well, I don't know what's going through your video, but when I read that passage, I think Jesus is pointing at the fish in the fire or maybe over on the dock of the boat in the nets. Peter, do you love me more than these? Because a few hours ago, Peter said, I'm going fishing. And Jesus is asking him not, Peter, do you like me better than fried fish? He's saying, Peter, do you love me more than what this world has to offer you? Do you you love me more than everything this world has for you? See, Peter in that moment had lost his focus. God had called him. Peter had served. He had seen great things done. But in that moment of weakness, the devil attacked that focus and tried to hinder his focus for God. And the devil will try to hinder you. He'll say, oh, you know, you don't probably need to go to church every time the doors are open. Yeah, you missed your Bible reading today. It's no big deal. And pretty soon your focus starts to drift, doesn't it? Your focus gets off those responsibilities you have toward God. The devil will come along and say, yeah, it's not really that important that you're still in love and you're marriage. I mean, marriage is kind of old-fashioned. You don't... The devil loves to get us to hinder. He loves to hinder that focus that we ought to have for the Lord. That's why God says, set, set your affection on things above. In other words, you've got to set that dial. You've got to keep that focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. General George Patton was the leader of our allied forces in World War II. I don't know if Patton was a Christian. There are some accounts that say that he was. You can read things that he said that would make you wonder if he was, probably doubt that he was. But he certainly was a great leader. General Patton is buried in Luxembourg, in the military cemetery in Luxembourg. I've stood on his grave, at his grave, I shouldn't say. I shouldn't say on his grave, at his grave. It's an amazing experience. The cemetery there has tens of thousands of white crosses. And if you've ever been to a military cemetery, you know that they're all in alignment. They're all, you know, everywhere you look, the, 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 you know, the crosses are in these lines. And it's beautiful. A great tribute to those who have given their lives for our freedoms. Well, over there, all of these Allied forces that were killed there are buried there, and you can go to the crosses, and some of them have short stories of how they died and so on. It's really quite amazing. And just thousands and thousands of them for acres and acres and acres. I have a picture of it in my office. When you stand on Patton's grave, no matter what direction you look in that cemetery, all of the crosses are in direct alignment to his grave. Now, you can stand any other cross, and that's not true. But when you stand at Patton's grave, every cross is in a direct alignment to his grave. And they did it on purpose to make it appear that the forces were still under his command even in death. It's an amazing amazing experience. They say that General Patton kept two books on his nightstand and he read out of both of them every night. 
You say, what were the books? The first was the Bible. And he read from the Bible every night. And they asked Pat, why do you read the Bible? He said, well, the Bible is a book of wisdom. And to do my job, I need wisdom. And so I read the Bible. Okay. What was the second book? The second book was entitled Rummel's Rules of War. Read out of every night. Who was Rummel? Rummel was the general of Hitler's army. He had written a book on the strategy of war. Now, why would Patton read out of that book? Because he wanted to know what the enemy was going to do. Now, fortunately for you and I as a Christian, God put it all in one book. He gives us his wisdom, but he also tells us in this book what the devil's going to do. And we better be aware of it. His attack on my life will be different than his attack on yours. His attack today may be different than his attack a week from now or a year from now. His attack on your life at 16 will be different than his attack on your life at 46. But the devil is seeking whom he may devour. He's seeking whose testimony can I make to disappear. I think by your faithfulness this week to Royal View Baptist Church, you have a desire to have a testimony that counts in this part of Phoenix, Arizona. You want this church and your life, these families, to make an impact on others who need the Lord. But the devil, as we said the other night, whenever God's working, the devil's also working. And he wants to make our impact disappear. Maybe he's attacking tonight a fear. Maybe he's attacking a fault. And he's putting pressure, temptation in front of you constantly. Perhaps he's attacking your faith or maybe your focus. Tonight, let's realign with the Lord.